as a minister, sometimes uh, you get these awkward invites. And uh, one such invite, once upon a time, uh, when I was uh, ministering in the kind of young adult space, was to a wedding uh, of someone I, I didn't really have a lot to do with. I, I, no, I wasn't even asked to officiate at the wedding, but for some reason I'd uh, gotten this invite and I thought, oh, well, they must have invited me because they were looking for numbers or something. I, uh, I don't really know why I'm going to this wedding, but I suppose I better go. Uh, and uh, in the end, uh, I, I consoled myself with, even though I was going to this wedding that I, I didn't really want to go to and that I wasn't really going to know anyone at, at least I'd enjoy a beer. Because, you know, at weddings, you get beer. Um, that's just how it goes, right? And as I turned up to said wedding uh, reception that I didn't really want to be at, I walked up to the bar to get the said beer that I consoled myself with as the uh, uh, reason why I'd be uh, happy to go to this wedding to find out that I had to pay for it. Oh, the outrage. Oh, the disappointment. Oh, the scolding from God for thinking that going to weddings for free booze was a good idea. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it was, it was quite shocking, uh, really, in Australian culture, to pay for a beer at someone else's wedding uh, is, is really quite, quite a shocking thing, or a wine for that matter. I remember when Elisa and I were planning our wedding, uh, we got to uh, considering how are we going to um, provide drinks for people. There are all sorts of different ways you can do that, uh, and most of them involve going broke. But uh, as we uh, considered, we, uh, we, we came up with a, a cunning solution. We'd have a lunchtime wedding in a separate location from where the service was, meaning the most number of people possible would have to be in cars and likely have another engagement on in the evening. We then put a small but not insignificant amount that was refundable over the bar and we looked very generous and no one was upset that there wasn't enough to drink at our wedding and we had enough money. So there you go. That's a tip for your children uh, when they get married. Having enough alcohol at a wedding is uh, culturally important in Australia and it was culturally important in first century uh, Palestine. There's this wine issue. And in fact, some commentators note that in Jesus' day, that failure to provide enough wine could lead to lawsuits. Uh, and let me say, on that, at that wedding I told you about first, I can understand why that might be the case. But before we have a look at this story of uh, Jesus uh, making wine at a party, uh, let's just consider the context of course, this is uh, uh, the first miracle that Jesus does in John's Gospel, a book that we know uh, from the end of the Gospel it is written so that we might believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. And uh, one of the ways John uh, uh, chronicles the life of Jesus in his Gospel is by telling us not everything. He says that at the end too. I haven't told you everything. But, but what he does is he tells us very significant and specific things about what Jesus did, which are meant to help us understand 
who Jesus is. And so John chronicles uh, seven miracles throughout uh, his gospel that we'll look at, which uh, are called signs, signs which show us who Jesus is. Uh, Let me read to you from one scholar as he talks about this. Signs are symbols in actions. That is, they are actions full of significance. They are windows into the ultimate realities at work in Jesus' revelation of God's glory in deed as well as word. These stories do not merely illustrate or symbolise divine actions. They are the record of divine action itself. And that's what we've got here in this story of a wedding without enough wine. And it seems a little bizarre and, and strange on one level. It kind of reads as you read it, doesn't it? It's like an accidental miracle that Jesus just happened to do because he'd been invited and his mother Mary was there and perhaps she was somehow involved in the catering so she's aware of the wine situation and so he just happens to kind of uh, lackadaisically, kind of casually make the best wine ever to sort out his mum's problems. But actually, we know because this is in John's Gospel that it must be much more significant than that. So let's have a look. Jesus is invited to this wedding. We've seen that. His mum's there. Uh, she, she must... Uh, it, well, we don't know for sure, but it's likely she was possibly involved in uh, uh, helping out with the catering because uh, why else would she be aware of the wine stakes? Uh, and we read... Uh, that she comes to him in verse 3 and says, they have no more wine. And Jesus gives this rather curious response in verse 4, doesn't he? Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. And Mary's response is also rather curious, uh, given her son's response to her. uh, Do whatever he tells you in verse 5. Now, this little interaction is full of all sorts of scholarly debate about exactly what's going on. Is Jesus being rude? Uh, Is uh, Mary uh, stepping out of line? What, what, What is going on here? Well, whatever we make of the interaction, we can note a couple of things. Firstly, Mary goes to Jesus with a problem without a solution. That is, she goes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine, but she doesn't say, can you do something about this? She just goes to him and says, there's this problem. And I think that what we see in that is a certain amount of humility and trust. She, she knows who her son is. Or we've just celebrated Christmas. We, we know uh, the, the story of... Uh, the angels appearing to Mary that we read about in the other Gospels. Uh, We we know the story of the wise men coming and we know that all that Mary has heard about this, this Jesus. So we know that she could go to him and say, hey, hey, uh, son, Jesus, can you, like, sort this out? You're the son of God. But she doesn't. She just presents the problem. And as he responds... Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She she simply says, basically, trust him as I trust him. 
She's asking for help without seeking to uh, uh, order Jesus around. There's a certain humility and trust about Mary's uh, request. And Jesus' declaration that his hour has not yet come as he uh, responds to Mary in verse 4 is an indication to us who are kind of aware of the, the, the larger picture, the whole story of the gospel, that whatever Jesus is about to do with Mary's request here is, is somehow going to be connected to his purpose for being here, his hour, that is, his death his, and resurrection in order to bring salvation to sinners. My time has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. This is Jesus saying, uh, uh, that is what I'm here for. Why do you involve me in this? Somehow what I'm going to do now is somehow going to connect to all of that. Which begs the question then, how does some good wine at a wedding connect to Jesus' saving sinners? Well, let's have a look at what happens next. Verses 6 through 10, we read how there's these six stone jars of water which are used for ceremony washing, each holding quite a lot of water, and they get filled up uh, and they uh, then uh, are taken to the master who draws some out and uh, the master says, wow, you have saved the best till now. Jesus responds to his mother's request by creating some top-notch grain hermitage, or more likely, uh, some before-its-time Tasmanian Pinot Noir, is what I like to think was, was in there. What does this have to do with Jesus' mission? What does this have to do with the salvation of sinners? Like... Why did John pick this miracle out of all the miracles he could have picked to be the first miracle he tells us about in John's Gospel? Well, in the Old Testament, the prophets speak of a time when God will restore his people and when they speak of this time, often they speak of it using the imagery of marriage and of an abundance of wine. Let me read to you some verses from the Old Testament. So Isaiah 54, verses 4 to 8. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called God, the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Isaiah 62 verses 4 and 5, no longer will they call you deserted or, you, or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Belua, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. 
As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. This coming salvation of the people of God reflected as the, the marrying of God's people to God. And in this wedding festival, we read of the, the finest and best wines, Isaiah 25 verse 6, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Jeremiah 31 12, they will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. And in Hosea, we see the two together, the, the marriage and, and the wine. Isaiah, let me just read from Isaiah, Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. God says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and, bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people and they will say, you are my God. The Old Testament is full of this rich promise of the people of God moving from banished exiles to married loved people of God where the wine is flowing and this miracle John's first miracle in his gospel is how he shows us that Jesus is indeed the promised one who has come to save God's people to bring them back to be united with God himself. Just as we've heard uh, Philip tell Nathaniel back in chapter 1, uh, as Jesus is gathering his disciples, uh, verse 45 of chapter 1 of John's Gospel, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This guy is the guy we've been waiting for, the guy the Old Testament talks about, and here he is letting new wine flow at the wedding feast. It's not the wedding feast, and it's not the new wine, but it is a miracle which signifies and points to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And that's how people respond, isn't it? As this miracle occurs, the disciples believe in him. 
What Jesus did here in Cana, verse 11, of Galilee, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, if all this was was, a, was simply just a convenience miracle, then it's hard to imagine that, it, that John would say, this revealed his glory. Because it would be easy for the disciples, it would be easy for anyone to kind of write this off as a magic trick or a sleight of hand. But when we understand this to be a signifying miracle that shows to the disciples and to us that Jesus is the one who God promised in the Old Testament would come to unite his people to himself and to let the, the new wine flow in, 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 in the rejoicing of the salvation of his people, then it does indeed reveal his glory and cause belief. And as they believe in him, they follow him and they go and stay with him for a few days down in Capernaum in verse 12. As Jesus reveals something of himself, something of who he is, something of the mission that God has called him on, the disciples' response is humble faith and trust. We touched on this a little bit last week. But again, uh, in these opening chapters of John's Gospel, I'm struck by the ongoing humble trust and faith of the disciples while still not really having any idea what's actually going on. The, 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 the journey of the disciples through the Gospels is a wonderful journey because they keep getting stuff wrong all the time. They constantly... Uh, mistaken, they don't really understand what's going on and yet one thing they do know is that they trust Jesus. They believe he's the one God has sent and they don't even really understand what that means but they, they, they know that that is true. And as they continue to trust him and spend time with him and learn from him, they continue to be transformed by him and ultimately as he dies, rises again and as the spirit comes upon them, they, uh, they, they, they live completely transformed lives and go out and do the work of building the church. Jesus is the one who brings salvation to God's people. And just as those first disciples' response was trust, faith and belief as they understood God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ, so too our response should be likewise. Uh, I've talked about this a little bit before, but I thought it was worth mentioning again. Uh, my life as a Christian... It has been one of ongoing development. And I, and I think as I've been reflecting on this of late, it's partly why I'm, I'm, I'm struck by it in these opening chapters of the Gospel, the, this, this ongoing trust that the disciples have, even though they're getting it wrong, and uh, yet they still are, are believing and they're learning more as they go. Uh, 
uh, when I was 16, of course, I understood that Jesus had died for my sins and uh, that was an amazing thing that meant I really started taking my faith seriously. But it wasn't until a few years later that I really understood in a deeper way what it meant for Jesus to love me. After four years at studying at Bible college and learning all sorts of wonderful things about God, it wasn't until a few years later that I started to realise my true identity in Christ. You you would have thought I figured that out at Bible college, but uh, I, I still had a bit of work to do in my heart. And just back in December, you know, I was away on a course and for two weeks I was the worst in the class. I was incapable of providing meaningful or helpful work to my classmates. It just was simply the case. I just wasn't trained to do it. And I remember one particular day about probably eight, eight or nine days in uh, when some of the work that I had done, which I knew was not very good, it got absolutely torn to shreds by this uh, uh, guy who was teaching the class in, in a way that only a major in the army can tear something to shreds. It was brutal. Uh, and I think partly he didn't know that I'd done it because someone else was presenting and I'd just tried to help. Uh, so he was even more harsh than he might have been if he knew it was me. But nonetheless, man, I, I, man, I felt so disappointed and upset and I was really, re- I was like, one of those feelings I haven't had for a long time, like, I'm useless. This freaking sucks. What am I doing here? And in my room, as I'm pro, like, I was really, like, like one of those few times in life where, like, I'm really, like, I think I'm going to cry. Like, you know, like, I've been really beasted by this guy. And I'm sitting there going, what is going on? Like, it doesn't even matter. We all know I'm just here to tick a box and, and uh, you know, get exposure to the process. Why do I feel like this? And as I'm sitting there in my room and I'm kind of processing this and I'm praying about it, I'm realising how proud I am. Like, I'm just a proud person. Like, I'm just sitting here in this room, having this guy beast me, and I'm just going, I'm so proud. I want people to think I'm good. What a shocking realisation. Why did it take God to beast me uh, on this course uh, for me to realise that I'm so proud? What a great moment of realising more about Jesus and who he's done and my need to humble myself. Constantly as Christians, we're learning more about who we are, who Jesus is, and what following him means. And we need to be like these first disciples, like Mary, who goes to Jesus and just presents him the problem. No, no solutions, just, I've got a problem, Jesus. Like the disciples who see this miracle and, and, who, and the servants who just do what Jesus says, we just need to humble ourselves and allow God's spirit to transform us.
We know a lot more about Jesus than the disciples at this party did. We've seen his glory on the cross. We've seen him rise to new life victorious. And so we can definitely do as they did and continue to follow him, to submit our lives to him, to allow him to transform us even when it's difficult and hard and even when he shows us things about us that we don't like. We need to continue to humble, humbly trust, believe Jesus, spend time with him and allow him to continue the work of transformation in us. Because that's his job. He's come here to do that. He sent his spirit to continue that work in us so that we might join with him at the wedding feast of eternity. Amen. Amen.